Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Midnight Oil Session Edition. My name is Brent Whitmire. I'm an editorial and features writer, and I'm here in the Journal Newsroom studio on Friday, June 19th. We've been burning the candle at both ends this week to get things done here in the gallery. We've heard apologies and pledges, rebukes and vows. There have been late night sessions, meetings with mayors, and man, all those guys must be tired. And that might explain why all our regular press gallery staff are actually all sick today. We'll talk about all that, though, plus intriguing post-sessional developments on energy and environment. And as always, I promise we will try to get out of here in a timely manner. (laughs) Sometime before midnight. Here in the studio, we have reporter Sheila Pratt. Hello. City columnist Paula Simons. Hello. Welcome, you two. You look fantastic. Well, it's because we, unlike Graham, Miriam, and Karen, we're not at the legislature this week until midnight every night. So I'd like to start with some late-breaking post-sessional news, energy developments. On Thursday, Environment Minister Shannon Phillips announced that the existing carbon levy would be bumped up from $15 this year to $20 next year and $30 in 2017. Uh, And there were changes to intensity targets Sheila, did any of this stuff come as a surprise to you? You know, it's really interesting. I think that uh, everyone was waiting to see how much they would increase that levy. Even under the Prentice government, talks had been going on with the oil patch for about two years. At one point, it was talked about as $40. So the bureaucracy over there had been working on the new regulations for a long time. Industry had been well consulted. And I think the new government moved in and took over that work and said, let's do it. Let's figure it out. And they came up with this, these numbers. I mean, the question is how far. It's certainly going to raise a lot more money for the technology fund. Some companies won't be happy, but I think the fact it's going ahead and the oil patch outcry hasn't been that big is that they're going to live with it. And wh- just how much it's going to reduce greenhouse gases is very hard to tell at this point. We are way over our limit. We had a target at the province of reducing greenhouse gases by 15 megatons, and we have come nowhere near that because production keeps rising. So it's still a verdict is out as to whether how affected this will be, but it's a very good first step. And I think that's the kind of reaction she's getting from both sides. Yeah, I I think it's really interesting. You don't see a lot of outcry from from the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers or from the really big oil sands producers, because frankly, they'd been asking for this. They need it to give them the social license to produce their product. They actually need the province to look tough on them so that then they can go internationally and say, see, we're being good corporate citizens and we're paying into this fund. And I think, as Sheila mentions, it's really important to note that this isn't money that's going into general revenues. This is money that goes into a specific fund that is designed to diversify the economy and to look for other kinds of greener forms of energy technology. So I think Sheila's absolutely right. I think this is a chance for the NDP to look like they're doing something the Tories never would have done, (laughs) when in fact, I think the Tories were going to do something. I saw people online yesterday being upset about this because they don't understand it. They're like, oh, our electricity prices are going to go up. Our, our gasoline prices are going to go up. I was like, no, that doesn't actually affect any of those things. I, I, th- I think it is meaningful. And I, I think that it's interesting the capital power guy said, well, actually, we've been buying credits for 10 years, so we're okay. 
energy companies, electricity and, and oil companies, have been preparing for this because we were the laggards. I mean, we were behind. Everybody else has a bigger carbon price. It still only applies to 20% of emissions, whereas in places like BC, it covers all emissions. But I also think it was interesting. They do look different than the Tories because Prentice had specifically took the $40 a ton levy off the table because he didn't want to be uncompetitive with the U.S. where they don't have a carbon levy like this on producers. The NDP seemed to be uh, really sort of trying to woo those small-C conservative voters that, that may not have voted NDP but ABC, anybody but conservative, also by hiring big economists, Andrew Leach, David Dodge, of course. How effective do you think these strategies will be in sort of keeping everyone happy? I, th- th- those two uh, uh, those two appointments are very good. I mean, they, she's making a point that they're mainstream on the economy. They're not radical lefties that are going to nationalize oil companies. So I, I think they're very good appointments. And I'm also very encouraged that Leach came from U of A to do work for the government. I mean, under the Tories for years, a lot of U of A profs went over and did a lot of work for the government. So it's great they're going to keep doing that even with the change of government. And it's interesting because during the election campaign, I mean, Andrew Leach in addition to being professor of business and economics at the U of A, is a blogger, a tweeter, and he had been a very tough critic of a lot of Rachel Notley's energy policies. And so to bring him over to do this kind of climate change consultation, I think reflect very well on the NDP and how they're managing their message. But I think that's a very good appointment. And David Dodge, who's been brought in to advise them on infrastructure, is another great appointment. I mean, former uh, head of the Bank of Canada, uh, not a lefty in anybody's uh, Mm -hmm. political spectrum. And to bring in Dodge to be their infrastructure advisor gives a kind of a blue ribbon aura to anything and, and gives, you know, you know, Brian Mason is going to need political cover himself and Dodge is going to provide it. I think that was a stroke of, of genius on the part of the NDP. Later today, we don't know what's going to happen exactly at this point. By the time the listeners are listening to this royalty review panel, there will be an announcement later today. Um, what's at stake here? Oh, this is this is one of her trickiest, much trickier than greenhouse gases portfolios. And so it's going to have to be very carefully done and very quickly done. So it'll be very interesting to see the members of the committee. We remember the last time that the committee went around and he, they did it through public hearings. We don't know yet whether that's going to be how Rachel's going to run her royalty review. You know, as we've discussed before on this podcast, Stelmac's timing was cataclysmically awful because the, the royalty review coincided with a softening of world oil prices and the collapse of natural gas prices. But Stelmac had a problem, a separate problem that Rachel Notley does not. Um, as soon as Stelmac announced that they were going to go ahead with the recommendations in the Our Fair Share royalty review, he got hammered by the big party donors in Calgary. And they came after him, and Calgary cabinet ministers were starting to conspire against him. I mean, he got destroyed from inside his own caucus. Mm. Notley is not going to have that problem. She doesn't owe anything to anyone in the Calgary oil patch. So the fact that she is beholden to no one in Calgary, politically or financially, gives her a political freedom that Ed Stelmack never had. Even if she did exactly what he did, she wouldn't face the same internal political blowback that he did. That's true. She doesn't face that. And, you know, wouldn't it be just, I've had people say to me too around this, wouldn't it just be great if we had royalty reviews regularly so they didn't become these huge political crises for the party, get put off for 10 years, 
there should be a regularized process for this. Yes, we get to review royalties. They're never set in stone. That's that is a great and, idea. Yeah, I, I just if, if she could get there, then that would take a lot of the political weight off of these things, off and, of her and off of every premier and, to come. Yeah, and 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 also, of course, then the oil patch would be used to this, and uh, they they would have to start going with regular re- reviews as well. That is a, that is a fine idea, and when and when uh, Rachel Notley hires you to be energy <laughs> advisor. <laughs> Well, it's going to be interesting, you know, because they're going to play all these economic arguments again. There will be threats about leaving, as there were with Stelmac, and there will be lots of stories coming out about, well, those oil companies really did go to Saskatchewan for a while, maybe. The resource is here, so it's uh, they're limited in how much they can move. You know, six months down the line where decisions are made, mm-hmm. and it will be very interesting to see. If that's not enough to have climate change strategy reviewed, um, royalty panel announcements, Notley opened up another front on the energy file this week by suggesting that perhaps the Alberta energy regulator needs yes. a review of its mandate. Yeah. Maybe you can tell, tell us a bit about that, Sheila. Well, that, that was a very interesting thing to put on the table. Let's remember she was environment critic for years, so she knows exactly how the regulator affected uh, what was happening on the environment. And as we know, they basically handed over to the regulator enforcement of all the environmental laws in the oil patch, water licenses, pollution licenses, everything. Because well, what could go wrong with that? Yeah, what could go wrong <laughs> with that? And this this was, as was always said, this is the you know the price they paid for having to do a royalty review is, okay, now we want to run the system. It's been very difficult. She cannot do this right away. That, that will be a very big job. As we all know, hundreds of employees from the Environment Department moved over to the regulators, so there's there's no capacity in the environment department to take that back right now. Hundreds of others moved over to the monitoring agency, and to disentangle that now would be very difficult, but I'm not surprised it comes from her, and if she wants to be serious about environmental regulation and oversight, that's probably where it has to go, but that cannot happen quickly. No, you know, and the political consequence to trying to do all these different things on the energy and environment file at the same time uh, yeah. the, the political risk to that is very high. All of these things need to be done. There's a backlog of governance problems that need to be resolved. But trying to do all of them at the same time is going to increase the howling of anger from that energy sector. And, you know, let it be said, that is still the economic driver of this province. She cannot afford, despite what I just said about, you know, not being as vulnerable to, to, to the Calgary power elite, um, she at, can only at, go so far. She can only go so far. And to try to move on all of these files simultaneously, it, you know, it, it increases the risk at each level that she goes up. That's why I, I think that regulator thing will take a while to happen. But it is a measure, as Paula, implicit in Paula's comments, is it, that's how far down the road the Tories had gone in listening to the oil patch and letting the oil patch influence public policy. They'd gone very far down that road, and that's part of why people were getting fed up. Back to the those late night sessions earlier in the week, we started to hear rumblings. This government is doing what all governments inevitably do when they get into power. They promise reform, but maybe they don't reform nearly as much as they had said. So thinking about Bill 1, our Calgary Herald colleague Don Braid called it a dubiously half-baked thing that leaves the door open to unions and corporations and personal donations of up to $30,000 in an election year. Have we been sold a bill of goods, do you guys think? I think the problem the New Democrats have is that they created their own set of high expectations. They said, we will give you a squeaky clean government that will be unlike any other government, you know. And the problem is that when you get into office, it's a lot harder to actually live up to the idealism that you portrayed when you were in opposition. 
if a Tory government had brought in this bill, everybody would have said, <laughs> yes. wow. this is remarkable, this is fantastic, Step you know, forward. wow. But, you know, the New Democrats <laughs> said, we're going to be perfect. And anytime they're imperfect, then people say, well, see, you're hypocrites and liars, and this is not what you promised us. Yeah, um, that's right. But that's it, is, it is a decent first step. Would I have liked to have seen them go further? Yes. Am I cognizant of the fact that they are not actually the shiny, perfect party? Yes. And I, I, you know, I think they will go further. I think this issue of limiting donations was the quick, easy fix. It's visible. Everybody gets it. The Wild Rose was on side. The other side, which is fixing the spending side, how much can you actually spend, is more difficult. Because uh, you, ha- you have to come out, what, it, what is the right number? Right now, it's like $30,000 in an election year. That's, that's a huge chunk of money. So what are you actually going to bring it down to? And, and then this weird thing about, you know, unions and corporations can, and you can make finance a loan, loans you or can something. You can pay the loan. I, yeah. I think they can volunteer that, workers, too. Uh, well, yeah, I don't, yeah, that's not as huge in some ways. But I think when this gets to committee stage, this bill, that I think some of this will get hammered out. Because and, and, uh, it does. It needs refining. But, but I think, you know, the Democrats have set this trap for themselves. They have promised people that this is not going to be government as usual. And every time they default to the mean, every time they default to what looks like government as usual, people are going to feel betrayed in a way that they wouldn't have if the Democrats themselves hadn't put themselves out there as a new kind of government. I have to say I'm puzzled by this one, though, because the Harper government has basically set the the tone on this one. I mean, corporate and individual donations are down to $1,000. And there are strict spending limits on, on what you can actually spend. So why aren't we going there? Unless you're Dean Del Mastro, which is yeah, entirely... <laughs> poor Dean. So there, there are strict limits on those. So I don't, I don't know why the NDP just doesn't go down the line yeah. and change yeah, this. They should have. We've also had a couple of partisan kind of gaffes this, this week. I guess I may not call them gaffes. One was uh, the revelation that Shannon Phillips had helped. I mean, proofread. I mean... I'm not sure quite what she did. Uh, an introduction for a book called An Action a Day Keeps Global Capitalism Away. Paula, you wrote an interesting piece this week, too, about uh, Lou, Lou Era, uh, Rachel Notley's purse holder in chief. So are we starting to see some exploitable kind of partisanness in the NDP? Well, I think these are these are two separate issues. Shannon Phillips, 11 years ago, was a staffer for the U of A Students Union. We have to remember how young some of these MLAs and cabinet ministers are. And 11 years ago, when she was younger and more naive, she had more radical views about environmental activism. But saying that 11 years ago, when you were at university, you favored protests I don't think necessarily means you can't be environment minister. <laughs> and protest is still a and, legitimate. And protest, <laughs> yes, protests against against government energy policies are, are are a perfectly legitimate form of political activity. So you know, I, I thought that was the best the Wild Rose could do. They're going to have to dig a little harder. The Lou Arab problem is a little bit more intractable. I mean, people who know Alberta politics know that Rachel Notley's husband Lou Arab is a very outspoken political animal. He's the NDP's former chief of staff, former communications director. He's uh, now a a senior spokesperson with CUPE, the Canadian Union of Public Employees in Alberta. CUPE doesn't have direct contracts with the Alberta government, but they represent a lot of hospital workers, a lot of school workers, a a lot of people who are funded directly by the province. So I wrote a column in which I suggested that given Lou's character as a very forthright and outspoken person, it's going to be impossible, I think, 
for him to be in that position while his wife is premier. It's it's going to create all kinds of tensions. You know, it's not my business to talk about their marriage, but <laughs> as a married person, that's that it's going to create tensions in their marriage and it's going to create all kinds of impossible situations for her politically. Changing pace here a little bit. We also had a really interesting moment in the legislature on Monday when Rachel Notley issued an apology to victims of the Indian residential school program. She also called for an inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women. On the one hand, you know, you can see this as this really sort of profound gesture. But on the other hand, these are things that are sort of out of their domain. What what do you think? Is this sort of... I think her apology was, was totally appropriate. I mean, of course, it was federal policy. And I think it was it was quite wise and historic. I think that was great. And she's not the first one, first premier to call for this inquiry. I have no idea if it will ever go ahead. And I thought the most interesting thought of that came out of that episode was Brian Jean saying, well, it's not enough. We should have action. I, I wasn't even sure that issue was on his radar at all. But there you go. I think Notley's apology came across as heartfelt and sincere. And I think she couched it in saying it wasn't our policy, but we didn't speak up against it. We as Albertans could have done more, especially given how many of those residential schools were in Alberta. I mean, they were a much bigger thing in the prairies. But, you know, Brian Jean is right. Apologies are, you know, the rhetoric of reconciliation is very nice, but there are all kinds of things that the Alberta government can do to improve the lives of Indigenous people in this province. We don't have to wait for federal action. We don't have to wait for federal inquiries. There are all kinds of things, whether it's funding for legal aid or funding for women's shelters on reserve or, or, um, you know, working to see what we can do to improve the quality of education in Aboriginal reserve schools. There are all kinds of really important public policy things that this government has to work on to make sure that Aboriginal people in this province uh, are full Alberta citizens with the same rights and opportunities that everyone else in this province takes for granted. There's a lot she can do beyond looking sad in the house. And I'm sure she will. Yeah. So now we're going to come to the part of the podcast called Good Stuff from the Gallery. We share something we've enjoyed often, but not always, with political connection. I'm going to say hot off the presses that uh, that I, I, I've started reading it this morning and I had to come into the studio. I haven't finished yet. It's the Supreme Court decision out of the United States this morning in Oberfelsch versus Hodge which is the gay marriage decision uh, in which the U.S. Supreme Court ruled five to four that every American state has to honor and uphold the rights of same-sex couples to marriage equality. For Canadians, that's not new. For Americans, that's a huge landmark decision, and some of the arguments pro and con are fascinating reading. Great. And if you want to have a glimpse into Andrew Leach's thinking, as he's going to be a very influential player in the royalty debate and, and what happens in the oil patch, we should all go to McLean's magazine, who, where he wrote a piece. He's written many pieces, actually, in the past in McLean's, and this one gives you a glimpse into what he's thinking for this. Yeah, he scoops himself, he says. Scoops himself, he says. <laughs> uh, my good stuff this week comes from Vancouver, where I've been watching this ongoing defamation trial of John Furlong. Wow. Furlong was the CEO of Vancouver's 2010 Olympics. Then in 2012, a freelance journalist named Laura Robinson revealed in the Georgia Strait that Furlong had been accused of abuse during the late 60s and early 70s when he was in northern BC to work at a religious school, mostly attended by Aboriginals. And he did not mention this chapter in his 2010 biography. Furlong has vigorously denied the allegations and sued for defamation. He dropped his case eventually when when the lawsuits associated with those abuse claims fizzled. But Robinson countersued, and so now here we are three years later. It's just a fascinating case um, and really, really sad. I mean, to see the reporters suing the subject for defamation is really something. And it's just a mess of all the sort of 
ethical issues, investigative journalism, the dangers of it, uh, media criticism, difficulties of delving into old abuse allegations, race, gender, truth, power. Just a fascinating and awful story. Um, and I don't think that there's going to be a winner no matter what the outcome. I'm going to figure out which thing to link to, but there'll be something in our links about that. Previous episodes of The Press Gallery are at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion or through Edmonton Journal SoundCloud feed. The show is also available on iTunes and TuneIn Radio, so subscribe today. Want to connect via Facebook? Check out the journal's Facebook page. We're all on Twitter, of course. Watching the Abledge hashtag. Is that how you pronounce it? Abledge. Thank you, Paula and Sheila, for joining me in the newsroom studio. Tune in next week when we'll dissect other embarrassing chapters written by other members of the legislature. That's all for now from the Press Gallery. Thanks for listening. <laughs>